Welcome to Continuum, the International Business Council podcast, where each episode we sit down with an incredible member of the IBC community, dive in, and learn from their journey. This is John Fitzgerald, and welcome to another edition of the IBC Continuum podcast. Today, we are very, very fortunate to have joining us as guest is Dr. Amy Novak, the president of St. Ambrose University. Dr. Novak, welcome and thank you for being with us. John, thank you for this opportunity. I'm excited to be in conversation with you today. Excellent. And with that, let's let's kind of get right into it. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you grew up, how you chose to go to, to Notre Dame, and I'm kind of spilling the beans, you went to Notre Dame for your undergrad degree. Yeah. And, and did you always envision yourself in education? Great questions. Uh, so I grew up in rural South Dakota. I spent most of my youth in Mitchell, South Dakota, home of the Corn Palace, and uh, grew up in a really entrepreneurial family. And so my parents were involved in construction, but also had a number of other side business interests. And so grew up in a, around a dinner table where we talked about business, but we also talked about nutrition and well-being. They were into health food stores and they very much into sustainability in the 1970s when that wasn't quite the term that we know today and uh, really shaped a sense for me about the way in which we respond and give back in our world. And so I graduated from high school and uh, went on to the University of Notre Dame and was really privileged to have the opportunity to to be there. And I always tell students now that I'm in higher education, um, I think it was my junior year, and I had an eclectic array of interests. And so I still do that. I still read in a whole lot of different disciplines today. But my dad finally said, Amy, you have to graduate. Pick what you have the most coursework in. And so at that point in time, I had the most coursework in history. And so um, I graduated with a history degree. I'm now uh, privileged to serve here at St. Ambrose University, but I'm most importantly, I'm a mom to eight and uh, really wow. privileged to um, sort of walk alongside them in a journey that has been incredibly enriching to both Ken and I as parents. My husband is also a graduate of the University of Notre Dame. And after we left the university and got married, our journey took us to a variety of different locations. He was in the military. So he was in a lot of different locations and I was able to really use, I think, a lot of the skills I honed in the liberal arts and in business to really try out different careers for all practical purposes. I've spent, uh, I did some internship work with Cargill and in the commodities industry. I worked in IT for digital equipment consulting before they were bought out by Hewlett Packard and spent time there in some management consulting roles worked for a nonprofit in Ohio to retrain the automobile labor force, spent time with mentally ill women and the Catholic diocese up in Ottawa, Canada, worked in Colorado in a variety of, of places with a little bit in the education space there, particularly in the community college environment, um, then was over in Germany, at which point in time I was working with veteran populations and particularly spouses of veterans. During those different opportunities, I guess I would say, I learned a lot about myself. I learned that where my passions lie. And my husband was medically retired while he was serving over in Germany. It was the start of the second Iraq war. And so I brought a whole lot of kids back to the States with me and back to my hometown in South Dakota. And he had been sent back and was in a hospital down in Texas undergoing some more long-term treatments. And um, it became really clear to me he wasn't going to be able to continue working. And so what could I do? And so there was an opening for a grant administrator. And I was a decent writer at um, a local 
college in my hometown. And so I started there as a three-quarter time grant administrator, and 10 years later was privileged to step into the presidency of that institution and served then as president for nine years at Dakota Wesleyan University in Mitchell, South Dakota, before just last year accepting the privilege of being the president here at St. Ambrose University in Davenport, Iowa. So how difficult was it after, I mean, you had a, a really storied time after you left Notre Dame. And you also have two more degrees, mm-hmm. and 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 I've had the the insight of been able to read a little sure, bit about you. Sure, so you, you went to to Wright State and then to mm-hmm. Creighton. So how did those factor into those those years before you probably started with Dakota Wesleyan? And at those years that you had at Dakota Wesleyan, how did you get into more of the administration role? And was it you know a plan perspective from you, or did it just kind of naturally evolve? So I think I I provided context to say to you, my dad always said, listen, doors are going to open. You're going to walk into them. You probably have no idea what's behind the second door, but give it a shot. And that was sort of the entrepreneurial spirit with which I was raised. So even while I was at Notre Dame, my summers were spent, I ran my own company for two summers doing market research and economic development work for um, a utility company and then for a, a consulting group in South Dakota. I traded commodities as I was sharing. So it was always trying new things. And what I realized is that there was this really, for me, a compelling intersection between labor force, economics, sociology and culture. In a lot of my work, I felt like I was leaning into how do we develop people? And frankly, how do we develop people for the evolving nature of our economy and our world? It was kind of a natural fit for me to look at a master's degree in economics. It was social and applied economics because I wanted to really understand how does what we do help develop the talent networks that drive, frankly, economic development? And what is it about a community, for example, that attracts companies to our communities? And so there's been this thread, if you will, of both entrepreneurial thinking, economic development, and I'd even say understanding talent and culture that has really permeated all of my experiences For example, when I was working for digital equipment, I had a really wonderful mentorship by a gentleman whose work really was not just about how do we deploy technology, but it was more about how do we maximize human talent in our organizations, then complement that with the technological investment to really make people and their ideas come to fruition in a meaningful and rich way for our organizations. So I can go back 20 and 30 years and really pull these different threads through. But the idea to go on and frankly, what happened was I was um, working at Dakota Wesleyan and I thought, you know, I'm going to do this for about six months. I'm going to stabilize my family situation and I'm going to get back into the network. Now, this is before LinkedIn. This is before all the social media and, and iPhones. I had been living out of the country, both in Canada and in Germany for a period of time and didn't necessarily feel like I had a great network. And knowing Ken's medical situation, I needed to just sort of keep the rest of the family in a, in a bit of a level space and place, enroll them in school and figure out what we were going to do. I'll honestly say a lot of this has been, I think, a gift from Notre Dame, which was a place where I also, on top of developing my own intellectual capacities, developed 
my faith. And so you don't go through sort of the circumstances we went through without having a, a reservoir, in my opinion, at least it was that reservoir of faith played a really critical role in helping sustain me through some challenging times, to say the least. But I got into higher ed and I thought, gosh, I really like this. And I can see the impact of the work and at Dakota Wesleyan, we were serving many students who were coming from low-income backgrounds, many who were also the first in their family to attend college. And to see the transformational impact that education was having on their economic, social, and spiritual mobility was powerful. And frankly, it was a privilege. And so that led me to really ask the question, if I want to stay in higher ed, how do I do that? And so about a year in, they had an opening, actually about eight months in, they had an opening for a um, person to direct their enrollment efforts. I felt like I had some gifts there to look at how do we look at the attributes of an institution? How do we build systems to really help encourage students to see the value proposition that was available to us at that university? And so was really privileged to step into the role of a VP for enrollment. And then I'm kind of a, a problem solver and probably had that DNA from my whole family anyway. And so everything that sort of was broken, the president at that time sort of gave me to fix. And so we had some challenges in financial aid and we had challenges in athletics. And pretty soon I had an opportunity to really develop teams that were addressing those complexities. Shortly, I think three or four years into that, then the faculty actually came and said, would you be willing to lead us? And we know you don't have a doctoral degree, but we need a leader. We had gone through uh, three to four different VPs for academic affairs, and the institution was really struggling. And so I said I would do that, but I would need to go back and get my doctorate. So frankly, I stopped watching television. I pulled out a <laughs> church table. I set it up in my bedroom. And for two and a half years, I went through and did a doctorate on the fast track with eight children. 3 a.m. was my morning time. And that's when I worked. And, and you know, then after dinner, would spend time with the kids. And then when they went to bed, I, I started to work again. And so really got focused on trying to do that while I was still a working professional and completed that degree and was really, really proud to be honored with the outstanding graduate thesis award by Creighton that year. So congratulations. Yeah, I was privileged to do some really meaningful work. Um, I was able to tie it into the work I was then doing. And so I think it's that, um, I guess, persistence, but also I'd say the entrepreneurial spirit that I grew up with sort of permeates how I approach work and how I approach the challenges we have in higher education. And much of that as well was honed, frankly, I was involved in the International Business Council while I was at Notre Dame. And, you know, even that sort of thinking was part of the ethos that was imparted on me at that time. So what what led you to, at Dakota Wesleyan for over 10 years, mm -hmm. that and it went through tremendous growth. I mean, mm -hmm. the school is, is much more stable from what I can see as an outsider today than it was in the past 15 years. What led you to look at the opportunity with St. Ambrose? So just to be clear, I was at Dakota Wesleyan for 18 years, 10 of which I served as president, and then eight of which I was in sort of that grant writer, VP for enrollment, and then eventually their provost. I had said to our board of trustees, here's where I'd like to see us get to. And we got there. And we had five new significant facilities that were added to the campus through donor-funded support. I had some targets around our spiritual growth and maturity as a campus that were fleshed out during that strategic planning effort. 
our enrollment, our retention, all those things really grew. And I think I just felt called to try something new or different. And frankly, I was drawn to St. Ambrose in large part coming through the pandemic and having two of our children who are African-American and watching sort of what happened to them in rural America. I was drawn to think about working at a place where there was an ongoing focus on lessening the polarization in our world and really equipping the next generation of students of color for the work in our world. We need them to be strong leaders. And interestingly, St. Ambrose is the was the first university in America to have a chapter of the NAACP and has a long history of social outreach and work in the community around social justice. And so some of those themes, I think, felt like they resonated both with my faith and my soul. And so, you know, when we talk about doing the work as a college president, I always tell people you have to be called to this work because you can never please everyone. And there's tremendous burnout rate among college presidents. And so I think you have to have a higher sense of purpose and calling. I really felt a sense of calling to a place like St. Ambrose that's still committed to serving first-generation low-income students. That's willing to be pretty innovative. And that's in my DNA as well. And it was a delight to be able to be back in my own faith tradition, really living out my call to serve and live into a leadership role that amplifies the lives of people and transforms them in ways that I think shift their trajectory for life. And you joined St. Ambrose about a year and a half ago? Yeah, it was actually, this week is kind of my one year anniversary. I started the first week of August a year ago. So you walk into a a new opportunity in the midst of COVID. What challenges, and not not specific, but bigger picture from a leadership perspective, did you have any surprises? And in in regard to, you know, sharing with our audience, like on goals, what type of goals are important to you and, and what do you look at in developing goals? So great questions. Yes, I walked into surprises, but we would be naive as leaders to think we know everything coming into these, right? And so I think one of the more challenging realities coming through the pandemic was just how important it was going to be to rebuild culture and rebuild community within our organizations. So St. Ambrose has roughly 500 faculty staff that are part of this community. And there was a real need to rebuild relationships and connection. And that was difficult to do in my first year in COVID, but we still made some significant strides there in doing that. Secondly, I think anytime as leaders, we walk into an organization, we owe it our humility. And what I mean by that is we really have to be listening. What is it that we understand about this organization? What are the challenges it's facing? Who are the voices that are shaping it? And then how do we capitalize on those strengths as well as those challenges to really shape and form the goals that we have for the organization going forward? And so for me, that's a co-creative process. I never talk about leadership being something that is done from a single lens or just from, from me, right? It's, it's really about how do you build an organization that collectively embraces a vision and is committed to co-creating its future. So what do you think holds people back from you know, achieving leadership, success, and, and being a great leader? I think that sometimes there's an unwillingness to take some leadership risks. And what I mean by that is we have to be willing to be vulnerable ourselves 
and to admit that we don't know everything. And in so doing, we usually are capable of equipping ourselves with a team of people around us that are truly willing to complement that and build collectively together. And I have always found that when I go at it alone, I rarely succeed. When I go at it with a group of people who I understand offer strengths and complement my gifts, we're a lot more successful. Leadership requires the vulnerability to also recognize when we have failed. And I can think of a number of occasions, even in the past year, where I stood up in front of the faculty and said, I didn't lead that well. I'm sorry. And I think we gain respect when we give in this complex environment we're in. And in higher ed today, not so much at Notre Dame or even the University of California, San Diego, but in a place where the demographics are challenged, where we're not a selective institution that has the luxury of sort of saying, you know, we're only going to take this select number of students to enroll. And whose mission, frankly, is focused on serving students who might be a 3.0 or a 2.5 or, or have an 18 ACT or a 22 ACT, right? Who don't have parents who've been able to provide the guideposts of how to go to college. We're facing some really significant challenges. So in, in that environment, if you think you can try and do this alone without actually trying to test new initiatives, pilot some things, understand that what we're walking into is going to feel very different than it did a decade ago in higher education. And if you can't give permission for some of that to fail, then we're not going to get anywhere because it's going to take a creative and new approach to creating new pathways, addressing issues of affordability and access that we have not traditionally looked at. And so I tell our faculty all the time, I'm never going to be upset at you if you tried something new and it didn't work, as long as we learn from what didn't work. And in higher education, where we're kind of birthed to be perfectionists, or we're birthed to spend tons of time legislating and conversing and dialoguing on things, this is a different mindset to act more agilely and nimbly and to develop the infrastructure within our organizations to do that. And that means we're going to have to give permission to fail and learn from failure in a way that we haven't traditionally done. And I think as a leader, it's been pivotal for me to understand not everything we do is perfect, and we can take the high stakes risk out of doing some things if we're willing to pilot and willing to learn from those. And I can, I can tell you there, there are programs I started at Dakota Wesleyan that didn't get off the ground because the pilot didn't work real well. And there were other things that were incredibly successful and launched all new revenue streams for us. So it's giving permission within our own organizations for a little bit of failure and having the humility to acknowledge when it didn't work. That is tremendously inspiring for me personally. Thank you for sharing that. So if you were to look back today to, to you when you graduated college, what would you tell yourself? Well, I never thought I'd be in higher education, and I certainly never thought I'd have eight children. So... <laughs> I would tell myself I was, I was a bad predictor. <laughs> um, so what I would say is the courage to take risks has paid off. Even when I didn't know what I was doing, the willingness to at least step into the conversation and listen and read and become informed was critical. Since I was a young girl, I've been a reader. I think last year I read 40 some books. I read across 
the disciplines. I mean, I've, I just finished a book on artificial intelligence and the metaverse and another book on energy policy. And I we read on religion. And I think as leaders, we owe our organizations our best intellectual engagement of lots of different issues. And reading is one way of doing that. But I would, I would look at myself and I would just say that you have to sometimes trust in something bigger than yourself. But if you're working in a space of your own calling, meaning if you feel deeply committed, I really see my work as ministry, that that also strengthens your resiliency and your capacity to do this work for the long term. Doctor, you've mentioned family a few times, eight children, great husband. How does a person balance family and career successfully? Yeah, I, I never use the term balance. A balance sort of suggests some sort of equilibrium about how we right. do this. And I'm not sure that that's possible or probable. And frankly, I didn't do it. What I do say to people is I'm about being present. So if I'm with you, John, I want to be 100% present with you. If I walk home in the evenings and I want to be present with my 16-year-old son, or I want to shoot hoops with my 13-year-old, then I am shooting hoops and I'm doing the best darn job of trying to beat him that I can, right? It's being present to them. Does that mean it's always an equal amount of time spent in place A or place B? No. But I think we actually hurt ourselves when we try and beat ourselves up, if you will, for the work. And I think our children have learned immeasurably from the roles we're in. So I think there's opportunities for intersectionality that we often don't put on the table. As an example, I think we probably had in the neighborhood of 300 students over to our home in the past year. Congratulations. I mean, my kids who are sitting around the table with them are learning immeasurably from the Black Student Union or from the Environmental Sustainability Group or the members of the football team, students from, you know, whatever group it is that we're having over. Or we have donor dinners at our house and they have an opportunity to briefly interact with donors or help get the dinner ready. You know, they cook. They've gained immeasurable insight. We've they've gone with us on mission trips that we've taken. I think there's this opportunity for intersectionality that has been invaluable for my children. And I'm always just about how do we be present when we need to be present? And I also just create and own my own schedule. So the previous leaders who were both here at St. Ambrose and at Dakota Wesleyan were different people with different lifestyles and different families. And for me, it's taking control of that schedule and prioritizing what I believe is important. As a parent to eight, I never get to everybody's everything. Doesn't mean that I don't have incredible conversations with them as they're on the bus coming back and giving me the play-by-play in a way that, frankly, I probably never experienced if I was sitting in the stands. So I think there's just been positives in both directions, and I've never seen the two work and home as necessarily mutually exclusive. Instead, I've approached it from a lens of intersectionality and what can we all learn from both experiences. Great perspective. Thank you for sharing that. When you look back in your professional career, are there any people or multiple person that really had a a huge impact on you? And if so, how? Probably more focused on the how as opposed to the who. Yeah, so I'm going to tell the story of my teacher in sixth grade that I think has cemented something on me that I've 
carry with me. Um, and then I'll, I'll share with you a, a mentor that I've had in my professional life as well. So I had a Catholic sister who just passed, passed away at, at 101 years old last year, Sister Sabina Joyce, who taught me in sixth grade at Holy Family Elementary School in Mitchell, South Dakota. And we were doing a series of readings on different global and, and political issues at the time. I recall rather naively, now mind you, I'm growing up in rural South Dakota, predominantly white, saying to her, Sister, you know, seriously, when do you think this, we'll figure out this question of, of race and equity? You know, when do, we th- when do we think we'll figure this out? Because we've been dealing with this for a really long time, and it feels like we should be able to figure this out and get it, get it over with and move on to the next major problem. And she, in her sort of five foot two stature, and a, a woman of power, though, despite that stature, she had been in Selma and marched with Martin Luther King and had worked tirelessly on a host of issues out in Washington, D.C., came and put her arms on my shoulder and said, Amy, this will be the work of your lifetime. Wow. And to this day, I am marked by that statement. So whenever I've worked and wherever I have been, I have carried this commitment to honoring people and understanding that I might come with a different lens, but to listening and appreciating in what way, wherever I'm at, can I work toward making, whether it's racism or any other related issue, frankly, just addressing the needs of the marginalized. How do we amplify those voices? How do we give an opportunity for those voices to be heard in our world today? Whether it was working with displaced auto workers or spouses of veterans or new immigrants in Ottawa or mentally ill women or students of all different backgrounds, I approach it with that lens of this is the work of your lifetime. This is what God has called you to do. And so I hope that I lead with that deep purpose for me, it's not about the revenue. It is. I mean, I have to keep margin sensible, right? I have to have revenues that right. make sense. I have to be able to pay people. But motivating all of those KPIs is a deep commitment to relationship building and people and to lifting people from the margins. So for me, working at a place like St. Ambrose is a, a brilliantly good fit because that's the commitment they've made is to working with people on the margins and amplifying their lives for transformational work in the future. So that was mentor number one. Mentor number two was actually in my first job. And, you know, there was no reason he should have taken me under his wing. Um, I was so young and naive and probably ill-equipped to be in the working space of a ma- as a management consultant. But he put me in front of a company out of India and a big transnational company from Sweden and, and another one in Germany. And he just really helped shape this ethos of figure out, you know, listen to people, understand the problem and amplify the talent pool, like figure out how can we really bolster talent. He taught me about systems and processes and systems thinking. I had early exposure to models of doing work, models of understanding culture, building trust in organizations that have fundamentally shaped my approach to our employees and to the way I do my work. And today, you know, he, he has since passed away, but 
he would be someone who would have told me on any given day of the week, walk through that door. You might not know who's going to be there or what conversation you're going to enter, but there will be some connection you can make and leverage that connection and figure out how that can take you into the next room. So as a follow-up on a mentor, the, the term you introduced, did your professional mentor come about organically or was he in essence assigned to a new management consultant? No, he was, he was, it was pretty organic. It, it started over lunch. I just asked if I could go to lunch and just learn about how he got to where he got to. That continued on for many years. I would say I have a, a 92-year-old mentor that's out in California who is a former board member at Dakota Wesleyan today too. And I can call him up and he'll He'll say, you're on the wrong path or, or, you know, he doesn't hesitate to say, I mean, frankly, he's the one who got me reading too. He said, if you're not reading 17 newspapers a day, you're not keeping up with me. And that was about the truth. He's been an incredibly successful entrepreneur, but he didn't hesitate to, to encourage a course correction. And for me, a mentor is someone who's more than your cheerleader, right? They're, they're someone who's almost like a coach. They're the person you can go to and say, am I on the right track? What am I not thinking about here? Or here's the challenge and here's my, my best thinking on the way through it. And they can offer a course correction. And so I've really been fortunate to have those people in my life, but I think they've been organic. Excellent. Excellent. So being with the IBC, we're the Alumni Association of the SIBC. And the SIBC started you know, way back in 1988 at Notre Dame. And as you mentioned earlier, you were kind of tacitly involved in the early stages of it. And for us, the, the involvement of the IBC, which started in 2003, our vision is kind of a, a continuation of the SIBC to create a world where the business community acts as a principled force for the common good globally. Somewhat aspirational, but we still are trying to bring it down and have it be something that people can embrace. So can you speak a little bit to that? And, and I'll repeat it, to create a world where business community acts as a principled force for the common good, you know, be it locally, globally. So any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I really think in today's environment, that sort of work is more important than ever. When we talk about being a principled force for good, I think we're really talking about how do we, in my opinion, how do we develop within business the mindset that our work transcends the stakeholder or shareholder and is really now impacting the communities in which we work and the places in which our products are delivered. And so, you know, there is a social responsibility that comes with the work that we're doing in business today. I appreciate that lens and think it's now more important than ever. The reason I say that is because I think business has the capacity to help us learn our way or figure our way through some of the challenges that we face in our world today, whether that's economic challenges or financial challenges or global political instability. I think when we pull together the thought leadership of business and pair that with a commitment to social responsibility and the common good, business can be a trajectory and can lead the way in informing change in a way that sometimes is much harder to do at the individual level. I, I, it's really not put yourself in this position, but what do you tell 
or what did you tell your graduates, class of 2022, just three months ago, that they have this, this huge drive, this huge desire to go out and make an impact and don't know where to start? What do you tell those students or now young professionals? So I, I always tell them the word commencement, I think it's French, actually says to begin. <laughs> and so really, this is the beginning of the next phase of their life. And what we hope, and I think places like Notre Dame or San Diego or St. Ambrose hope, is that we have equipped them with the capacity to not just have a certain set of skills in business or healthcare or computer science or engineering, whatever that might be. But they're actually equipped with a set of values and an ethical compass and a core set of principles that ought to inform how they do their work and with, frankly, how they interact with others in their workplace. So I I tell them the most important thing is to sort of authentically live into that calling individually in whatever work you're doing and consider ways that you contribute to your community voluntarily or through your business, but you have capacity to be impactful. Each of us individually have capacity to be impactful, but when we get around the table with a whole lot of others, we really can move the needle on some of these things. So I encourage them to form connections and a network, to leverage those relationships, to consider the ways that their actions are informed by an ethical compass and a set of principal values that we hope we've helped them hone here at St. Ambrose. And then to think about the ways they go and make an impact on the common good. I mean, one of our values here is community. So all of our students engage in projects around strengthening our common community. And so we invite them, we encourage them to take those same practices with them wherever they land and to see their work as a way of building those relationships that fundamentally transform our future. What are you most proud of in your life so far? I would say I'm, I'm just really humbled by the work that I get to do. I mean, every day I wake up, I say, how did I get this lucky? And when I watch a young group of people walk across a stage and I know they're the first in that family to go through college and to now become the first nurse or the first uh, engineer or the first counselor, what an awesome privilege that is and how blessed I've been to be a part of that process. And I would say, I'm really proud to be a mom to these eight kids and a, have an incredible partner. There are days I want to pull my hair out. <laughs> John, what I have learned as a parent to eight very diverse young people has fundamentally transformed who I am and has brought me closer to Christ. Because but believe me, as a mom of eight, you pray all the time just because you have to. You don't have any other recourse. You can't tell them all the time what to do, right? So you figure out a way. But yeah, I just think what an unbelievable good fortune it's been to be in the lives of all these young people and be part of that transformation. So if, if you had a, a windfall of money just appears today and, and you don't have to work anymore the rest of your life, what would you do? I mean, Ken and I talk about this all the time. He works in hospice chaplaincy. He works in a variety of places where, you know, he's got incredible gifts now, despite not being able to serve in the military. I think we'd keep working. And what I mean by that is, I think both of us feel that our ministry is in lifting up the marginalized in our world and giving voice to people who don't have a voice and in being in relationship with people who 
are lonely or isolated or who never thought opportunity or hope was possible. A windfall of money would probably go to a bunch of organizations that we felt carried forth that mission. And we would just keep trying to take whatever gifts God continues to bestow on us and share those because this is too big of a blessing not to carry it forward. Thank you. That's that's great. And I can't thank you enough for your time today. This has been fantastic. I've learned a tremendous amount about you, but I think more so for our listeners, it really gave them a different perspective on, on leadership, on family, on career, and understanding kind of this perspective, what really drives you. So thank you very much, Dr. Novak, for your time. And, and I wish you and St. Ambrose all the greatest successes moving forward. John, thanks for the opportunity to be part of this conversation. And I just, let me just say, I appreciate your mission and your vision, and I'm grateful to just be participating in this dialogue. And I'm sure I will learn from others who are part of this podcast as well. Thanks for your time. Yeah, take care. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening today to Continuum, the IBC's podcast series. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. And for more information about the IBC, visit our website at ouribc.com. That's just O-U-R-I-B-C dot com. Thanks. 